1: Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun from May 14th to
2: 16th A thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grasso. From Bloomberg Radio.
4: President Trump says he'll be placing a 60-day pause in the issuance of green cards to limit competition for jobs. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland & Knight. Explain what his decision
3: would do. So the core of President Trump's decision is actually quite simple in that it only affects human beings that are outside of the United States, not human beings that are inside of the United States. And it only affects those human beings insofar as they are applying for a green card, not for any other more temporary visa. And what it is saying is for those human beings who are applying for green cards, they are not eligible to actually obtain their green card for the next 60 days or whatever the order is actually issued
4: So how many people would that affect because green cards are also notoriously slow in processing?
3: Sure. Well, I would say that there's a couple of ways to look at it. It's hard to get an actual number. For employment-based green cards, most of the people who get them, about 80 percent or so, are in the United States already. So it wouldn't affect that group. It would affect about 20% that are not in the United States. But even of those 20%, to the extent that that group consists of healthcare workers, there is some belief, although obviously the order has not been actually issued yet, so it's hard to read, that the healthcare industry is exempt from this. And so it wouldn't be a lot of people now. To the extent that family green cards are also implicated, then there are a lot more family members who are abroad waiting for green cards. And so that could be in the tens of thousands that are affected. But we need to wait and see what the order actually indicates.
4: So basically, are you supposed to have a green card before you work? And how often is that ignored?
3: Well, so there are two types of visas. There's what are known as non-immigrant visas and immigrant visas. And so a non-immigrant visa is a temporary visa that allows you to come into the United States for a specific purpose. None of those, apparently, although we have not seen the order yet, are affected. So that includes the H-1B visa, which is for high-skilled workers, the L visa for people being transferred from their companies, the O visas for outstanding Einstein-type workers, the P visas for athletes and entertainers, None of that is affected. What is affected is to the extent that anyone abroad actually wants to come here and work permanently. That is what's apparently been affected for the next 60 days.
4: President Trump said at a White House briefing on Tuesday, it would be wrong and unjust for Americans laid off by the virus to be replaced by new immigrant labor flown in from abroad. So this is supposedly to take care of that problem. But from what you say, it doesn't really address that problem.
3: Well, it addresses it, but in a very narrow way for a very concrete group of people. And so the issue is, what makes this very complicated is this. A large, large number of the people who are actually seeking work in the United States as foreign nationals are already here. They either came as visitors or students or something else, and then they're trying to change their status. And what happens is that the president's travel ban authority only permits him to ban people if they're trying to enter the United States. He doesn't have the power to just stop the application filed by people already lawfully admitted into the United States for some other purpose. And so that's why when his initial tweet was issued, people were very skeptical and were immediately wanting to see the order because they knew it couldn't actually shut down the whole immigration system. Moreover, the fact that our embassies and consulates are basically closed all around the world anyway for the next 60 days means that his ban functionally probably wouldn't have banned too many people because you need to go to the embassies anyway as your final step of getting a green card to do an interview. And none of those folks were going to be able to have interviews anyway because they were in countries where things were not open due to the coronavirus. And so that's why people are maybe a little bit skeptical as to the coverage of this executive order.
4: Let's just say the executive order goes through and it is challenged. And by the way, the ACLU has said that they don't know yet whether they're going to challenge it because they haven't seen it. So, if it is challenged, let's talk about the Supreme Court and how the Supreme Court might handle this challenge.
3: If it's a 60 day temporary ban, and it's actually only 60 days, it's very unlikely to get to the Supreme Court and actually be adjudicated within those 60 days. If this is something that keeps being renewed, Well, then you have to ask the question, why is this ban continuing to be renewed? And so there's two different reasons that are being given. And one is, Okay, we're trying to protect people from the coronavirus. So to the extent that that's true, you're going to have to make it a much narrower order than an entire ban globally, because some countries will have had this and have gone through it and others will have not had it and not gone through it, etc., And then secondly, to the extent to save American workers for jobs, you have to be very careful there because, especially in the employment green card context, many times the folks have already proven that there's not a U.S. worker available to do that job. And so in that situation, it's hard for the president to actually use a criteria that's not Permitted under the law. The law already covered that issue. And so he's basically saying, Well, I don't care that the law covered this issue. I'm still
0: going to ban people. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common,
4: Leon, let's say we were back to normal times. In what situation would the Supreme Court grant review of a decision made by a lower court on this order?
3: Well, the way it would work practically is if the president's proclamation ends up being enjoined, there's a 100 percent chance the Supreme Court would take the case. If the president's proclamation is not enjoined, it's actually very unlikely that they would take the case. But if they took the case based on a ban from a lower court, then I think they would actually look at the legitimacy. This is what the Hawaii decision in the original travel ban case talked about. They'd look at whether it is facially bona fide and legitimate. So they look at the legitimacy of the decision. Is there actually something that this is based on? The complication would be if it's just a global ban without any waivers or any, any discussion about the individual applicant, it's going to be hard to keep this ban in place. I'm not saying that maybe you don't reflexively get five votes just no matter what, but this case actually poses a more complicated dilemma than the travel ban case.
4: I want to take a broader look at immigration right now during the time of the pandemic, because while the rest of the courts around the country are basically grinding to a halt, immigration courts are projected to issue nearly 60 percent more deportation orders this year than last year. And some are going forward even having cleaning crews in hazmat suits when necessary.
3: Well, the immigration courts have a conundrum. So there's what's called the detained docket and the non-detained docket. The detained docket is there are people stuck in immigration detention. And so you want to get their cases resolved as soon as humanly possible so that they don't remain in detention. The non-detained docket means that the person, the government is trying to remove them, but they're not in detention. And so there's no sense of urgency. So the non-detained docket courts are closed until May 15th now. The detained docket courts, the reason that they're open is because the government is in a very difficult spot where if it just lets people languish in detention – that is too, is unconstitutional, but it doesn't want to release certain people from detention. And this is where it becomes very complicated because, surely, most people in immigration detention, there's not really a problem releasing them because they haven't committed a violent crime. But for the cases where people have committed a violent crime... You are caught in between a rock and a hard place. Do you release those individuals into the community and then have to try to pick them up later? Or do you continue these court proceedings so that they're not sitting there languishing in detention? And then the other complication is, but what if the country we're trying to deport them to isn't accepting people right now because of the coronavirus? Well, then this whole court proceeding is for naught. Just lawyers and judges are getting sick because You're not going to be able to actually secure a removal anyway, even if the court proceeding does go on. And in that situation, then even further consideration needs to be given to releasing the detainee.
4: The National Association of Immigration Judges is saying that it's unsafe and calling for the courts to be closed. If that happened, that would mean keeping those detainees in custody.
3: Right. It would require a very difficult choice for the government. If you close the detained immigration court... The government would then have to decide, do we want to face the possibility of getting many lawsuits because our people are admittedly languishing in civil detention, not criminal. They've already served their criminal penalty. Civil detention that is designed for removal only indefinitely. You have no idea when they're going to get out of detention. And so those cases are very compelling. Or do you have to release these individuals into the public And then face the possibility that a violent crime could be committed. And so most of the time, if you have any kind of confidence that the person won't do something wrong again, you would want to release that person. But there are some people that you'd have a high degree of confidence they'd do something wrong again. And the question is, what do you do? Do you keep them in detention? Or do you at least try to operate the immigration courts as safely as possible to see if you can actually get a removal order ready to go and get them removed so that they don't have to stay in detention?
4: Leon, why can't the immigration courts operate largely by video conferencing or phone conferencing as other courts are?
3: So this can and cannot work. It depends. It's a little bit complicated. And here is why. In the detained docket system, you have potentially three to four different sources of what's going on. You have where is the judge going to be sitting, where is the client going to be sitting, because they're in detention, mind you, and where is the lawyer going to be sitting. And the problem is the lawyer needs to be able to confer with their client about what's going on in the case. And you can't really do that via video conference where everybody's listening to you. And there aren't really, it would basically require a whole new imagination of this system in order to get it to work where there would be a secure line between detainees and their clients that wouldn't be monitored and that they could talk during the case, et cetera. Et cetera. And so it's not that it's technologically impossible, it's that all of that would require an investment, that you have to examine whether it's going to be a short-term investment or a long-term investment. And it doesn't justify a short-term investment, but it would, of course, justify a long-term investment.
4: I want to ask you about a claim that President Trump made yesterday that new border wall is constantly being Built. And also, he tweeted this morning: in the meantime, even without this order, our southern border aided substantially by the 170 miles of new border wall. Are there 170 miles of new border wall? And is it constantly being built?
3: Well, all of this is in the eye of the beholder, meaning it all depends what you want to define as a wall. Because if you want to define a wall as a wall, like the Berlin Wall or the Great Wall of China, you don't have that. If you want to define it as fencing, then the question is, what fencing are you calling wall? Because there's even more than 170 miles of fencing, but some of that fencing is quite easy to get through. And then some of the new fencing that has been put in during this administration is more difficult to get through. And so the question then becomes, what kind of fencing it is and it is possible there's 170 miles of this new strong fencing but in the end all that was was fencing that replaced other fencing that was there and so i don't know what problem we're trying to solve for there but to the extent that someone wants to make that claim there definitely can be a way to make that claim
4: that's leon fresco a partner at holland and Knight. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcast I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.
1: You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through.